Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back. This is Nico Perino. I'm your host for So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. On February 13th, we at FIRE celebrated our 10th consecutive victory in our unprecedented and thus far undefeated Stand Up for Speech litigation project. What happened was a three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit unanimously upheld a federal district court's decision to permanently bar Iowa State University from using its trademark policy to prevent a campus student group from printing t-shirts advocating marijuana legalization. The decision was our project's first decision from a federal court of appeals, so it was a really big deal. The ruling demonstrates how when students and faculty members step up to challenge their college's speech codes, they win. But challenging your school's policy in court can be scary. So today we're going to talk with Rob Corey. He's a lawyer in Colorado who in 1994 joined with eight Stanford students to challenge a Stanford speech code. We're going to talk with Rob about what inspired him to file the lawsuit, what worried him about suing his school, how campus responded to his lawsuit, and what the eventual court victory on February 27th, 1995, so 22 years ago this month, meant to him, and also what it meant to Stanford and to the national conversation about free speech on campus. I'm excited because for today's conversation, I'm joined by Joe Cohn. Joe is FIRE's legislative and policy director. He is making his, so to speak, premiere, and he is the man who originally introduced me to Rob. So, Joe, thanks for coming on the show. Nico, thank you so much for having me. So, Joe, this was an important speech code decision, this Corey v. Stanford decision. Why? Well, it's a very important decision. It's one of the early decisions striking down uh, a speech code. And in many ways, it was ahead of its time because it's a case that's decided in 1995, several years before the United States Supreme Court defined peer-on-peer harassment, which uh, which set forth when speech loses its protection in a higher education and an actually an education context uh, to become actionable. So, So that's really a, a very important feature of the case. But the second thing that's really important about the case is that it's the first time that a court applies First Amendment principles to a private institution, uh, in this instance, uh, using the California statute that's now called the Leonard Law, uh, which which says that private non-sectarian institutions can't censor speech that would be protected at public institutions. And it's the only California is the only state in the country that has this sort of law. It is. All right. So let's bring Rob Corey on the show and we'll talk to him about what was the inspiration for the challenge to the speech code, uh, why it's such an important decision, and how he's taken his activism in college and applied it uh, in his postgraduate years. So Rob, thanks for joining us on the show today. Sure. Thanks for having me. So, and and happy President's Day, by the way. Yeah, happy President's you Day. Know, it's it's nice to have a holiday honoring Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> now you're a, you're a lawyer, right? So you have this day off. The courts are closed. Uh, technically, it, it is a court holiday, but I'm sitting here in my office catching up on paperwork anyway, and uh, our receptionist is gone, so it's a quiet day, and uh, getting a lot done. All right, great. So. 
Let's go back to your speech code battle back in the 1990s. Can you set the scene for us on May 2nd, 1994, when you filed your lawsuit? What was the environment for free speech like at Stanford in particular, but also across the country? Sure. And and there's even a bigger lead up to um, when we filed the lawsuit, which was kind of our last resort, honestly. Um, the lead up to that is I was a elected student government senator representing the law school in Stanford's overall student government. And most of the students did not like the speech code. And these are students of all political stripes at the time. Um, you know, this was largely an administration thing responding to a very vocal uh, minority that wanted the speech code, minority, numerical minority of students. Um, and so we worked with the student senate to get a bill introduced, and we, we actually had a majority of uh, student senators as co-sponsors of the bill. And so it was, it was heard at one of our student senate meetings, and lo and behold, at that meeting, the president of the university, Gerhard Casper, showed up, who's also a constitutional law professor, brilliant man, um, and you know made a defense of the speech code and persuaded enough senators, even co-sponsors of this bill, to vote against it. Um, so there are a lot of thoughts that come up from that. You know, if you co-sponsor a bill, generally you're supposed to vote for it, but um, <laughs> uh, that didn't happen. So this bill failed in the in the student senate, and you know we wanted to work within the system to repeal the speech code, but that wasn't possible. So then a group of us decided, well, what's our next step here? And we were familiar with the law at the time in California, which is still the law, the Leonard Law that imposes uh, First Amendment standards on private universities. And I'm going to jump in right there real quickly because uh, it's an important thing for our listeners to understand. The courts have established very clearly for decades now that the First Amendment applies in full force at public institutions of higher education. So it's unique in California that they have a statute that prohibits censorship of students at private institutions of higher education through the Leonard Law that you just mentioned. It is. It is a unique law. And, you know, there are good arguments for and against it from a liberty, free speech standpoint. Um, incidentally, Stanford didn't know how to make those arguments against the Leonard Law. Um, you know, the, the private sector has some uh, – is different from the public sector. But at any rate, our goal as students and, and my goal as a litigator was to use the tools that were – available to us to, um, you know, strike down the speech code. So the Leonard Law, which uh, is, I think, still unique in the United States, although Colorado is looking to pass something similar to it, applied First Amendment standards to a private university like Stanford, which was to the betterment of the university unquestionably. And the atmosphere, to answer your question, on campus was, you know, unfortunately, things haven't changed much since uh, 1994, but it was the stifling political correctness, um, it, you know, with or without the speech code. It was it was a political correctness that was peer enforced and, you know, shaming people. There was a, a big incident uh, my first year of law school where a first year law student um, was walking home drunk in the by the dorms and shouted some things against a RA who 
happen to be homosexual and you know this little drunken escapade landed on the front page of the Stanford Daily day after day um you know the, a bunch of law students took out a full page ad in the Stanford Daily I was not one of them um I I'm proud that I you know resisted all the peer pressure to sign this ad and this this first year law student who was a a good student smart guy was hounded out of Stanford Law School. I mean, he he moved on to a different law school after his first year because of this one drunken escapade. Uh so this is this is the atmosphere on campus and it was to the point where a person really was afraid to make even a reasoned um substantial substantive political argument against say affirmative action because it would be it could be interpreted as criticizing a person for their race and therefore a violation of the speech code and you know, well can you give can you give our listeners an understanding of what the speech code said yes the speech code prohibited basically insults based on certain characteristics and the laundry list was race gender religion national origin sexual orientation so you could insult somebody's mother for example but you couldn't insult somebody based on those certain characteristics and given the atmosphere i mean that this is those characteristics are pretty broad and encompass a lot of uh political things but you know this could reasonably be seen to affect discussions about all sorts of political issues affirmative action civil rights abortion um criminal law you know most of these issues have some element of race gender religion national origin i mean we can't even have a religious discussion on a campus um and so what did it what it did and it was rarely invoked if ever um to censor a student formally but it exerted a chilling effect on students and people did not want to be expelled uh go figure you know they so they censored their own speech and this is on top of this political correctness that already permeates and you know we see the chilling effect in speech codes all, all of the time and and what was to us so impressive about your challenge was that you were able to pinpoint how that speech code targeted not just the kind of conduct that truly is harassing but was overbroad to bring in conduct that we don't want to prohibit and speech we don't want to prohibit because it is in fact uh, protected. And if I recall correctly, the, the actual speech code talked about uh, harassment in terms of personal vilification of a student based on the traits that you listed. So that's pretty broad. It, it sure is. And I think we all know how it could play out um because it's it's the effect on the listener and the, this is it was a complaint driven process or would have been and so if somebody was in a discussion and one person didn't like the other person's views that person could then report the offender under the speech code and uh, as we all know how campus discipline works i mean you're guilty until proven innocent um and of course we know also the viewpoint discriminatory nature of the speech code i mean the prevailing orthodoxy from the administration and faculty is overwhelmingly left liberal and 
So, of course, everyone knew that it was only going to be enforced one way. You know, at FIRE, we deal with that problem all of the time, and we tend to, uh, to, to think through this issue of the, of the line between when speech is clearly protected and when it becomes conduct that loses its protection because it's peer-on-peer harassment, and we view it through the lens of what the courts have said over the years um, you know, in, in, in 1999, the Supreme Court defining peer-on-peer harassment in a case called Davis versus Monroe County uh, Board of Education. Uh, but when I think back through your challenge, you didn't have the benefit of that case law yet because it didn't exist. We're, we're talking 1995, a few years before the Supreme Court had weighed in. Yep. We did have the RAV case, which was, was a big one for us, and we structured our lawsuit around that. For our, for our non-lawyer listeners, can you describe that case and, and the findings? Sure. RAV is a person's initials, and um, that case dealt with laws criminalizing cross-burning. And, um, you know, somebody burned a cross uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota, and was prosecuted for it, and then struck down that law because burning a cross was um, free speech protected. Um so, you know, we did have that case, and obviously that's an extreme case, and most First Amendment law is extreme. I mean, you don't need uh, protections for popular speech, so that's why the, the vast majority of the case law centers around unpopular speech, controversial speech, which is the point of the First Amendment. So we had that case, and then the university centered its arguments around the Chaplinsky versus New Hampshire case, which was... Um, you know, this kind of outlier case that... that Fighting words doctrine. Right. It it said that the government could prosecute fighting words that were designed to invoke a violent response. And And what's so crazy about that case is that it's talking about uh, a, a citizen calling a law enforcement officer a fascist pig. Or a fascist, and, and like a goddamn and, racketeer, or, and, something. or a goddamn <laughs> racketeer, and and the court decides that, that 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 any reasonable you know person being called those names would 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 would, would lash out in violence. That a, right. a law enforcement person wouldn't be able to restrain themselves with that kind of of incitement. So it's it so, is amazing too the way history is going because. These days in the United States, it, I mean, it seems like cops get called fascists on a daily basis, if not hourly basis. And, it, you know, people seem to, cops are, to their credit, usually able to just blow that off, you know. But, you know, it's also, just, it's also just a very political issue that underscores how that kind of commentary is at the heart of the First Amendment, of dealing with people's relationship with the government where they're in fact interacting with the government on a direct basis. Yeah, I would argue that, that the Chaplinsky case has been basically overruled by common sense over the years. <laughs> I, don't think any, I don't think anybody believes the holding of it anymore. It's just it's lost its validity, kind of like when uh, Justice O'Connor says affirmative action has to expire in 25 years, which, which is coming up, by the way. That's coming up pretty soon. Yeah, and regardless of how you feel about law enforcement, the ability to, to weigh those feelings out publicly uh, is, is really at the core of what it means to be a free society. It really is. So I want to chime in here because the argument that the school was making was that this 
speech code only targeted fighting words. And from my understanding, reading through the history of this case, there were law professors involved who were trying to stick closely to that doctrine. And then your argument was that it didn't really match the fighting words doctrine or that doctrine had mostly expired and you're citing cases like RAV. What the discussion over the speech code and the speech code was introduced in 1990, if I'm correct? That's correct. It happened over an 18-month period, and it sounded like the conversation surrounding the speech code on campus was very robust. Was this a conversation, not with particular uh, focus on Stanford speech code, but nationally, were there conversations about speech codes in the early 90s? And who were, who were leading those, those conversations? There sure were conversations, and, and I arrived at Sanford in 1991, so I was not present on campus for the debate about whether to have a speech code. Of course, I researched it. You know, there were all kinds of views on all sides of it. There was no there, fire there at was the time. Good, right, true. And had fire been involved, I, Stanford might not have even gone that direction with a speech code. And there were there were professors, you know, on the on the left who were credible First Amendment scholars who said this is a bad idea. Um, and, you know, the, the prevailing political orthodoxy of the day came through. But it was part of this national conversation, too. You had the, the book a few years earlier, The Closing of the American Mind, which, which focused on campus political correctness. And, and that one, that one was, that book was a revelation and brought this issue to the fore. But the issue, the big issue with the speech code, and going back to something you said, it, it was based on this fighting words doctrine, but it was only, it, it only carved out a certain preferred type of fighting words, you know, and, and that's what the court honed in on too, that it, it, it didn't even apply the Chaplinsky precedent properly because it only said these types of fighting words are prohibited so it was arguably underbroad because it didn't uh, prohibit all types of fighting words, and that was a really uh, fatal flaw of uh, of that of that speech code was that it really didn't match what it was trying to get at. And, and you know, and I and I talk, you know, in my role as Fire's legislative and policy director, I'm talking to. Uh, university general councils, but also lawmakers across the country all the time, and uh, and I'm talking to them about how schools do have a legitimate reason to have some very narrowly tailored uh, restrictions on on speech. But when they try to justify those restrictions, they need to make sure that their solution that they pose and the regulations that they pitch uh, really do match the problem they're describing. So, for example, if you had, uh, you, know, you have a, a library on your campus, you might have a legitimate reason to not want amplified sound and loud protests outside the library, you know, at, at night. Uh, but that can't possibly be used to justify a permitting requirement that says that someone has to get permission two weeks in advance before they can hand out copies of literature to, you know, to a fellow student. Right. And and the way Stanford structured it is, to use this analogy, I mean, you could have the late night protest outside of a library if it was to protest certain topics, but you couldn't have it if it were to protest other topics. I mean, they, they tried to carve out certain topics that were off limits, and even though we didn't need to prove this, it seemed clear to everybody that it was not only certain topics, but even 
ideologies from a certain side that that were the um, the targets of this speech code, and it was also called the gray interpretation of the fundamental standard. The fundamental standard standard is this overarching kind of general rule at Stanford that has existed since the inception where you know students are supposed to be courteous to each other and that sort of thing um, the language of the late 1800s and, and, and then and, Tom Gray and Gray Gray was uh, a person it wasn't there to, to imply the vagueness of the policy right <laughs> yeah Tom Gray it wasn't like Gray Aries that was his name uh, Professor Tom Gray who was a law professor and he authored um, the speech code, and he, he he didn't call it a speech code. He resisted that term, but it really was a speech code, and the court used that term as well. Well, they never call them speech codes. They call them, you know, har- harassment policies. They call them computer use policies. They call them distribution policies. But uh, but and they sound innocuous, but they really right. are talking about what you're allowed to say, when you're allowed to say it, and who you're allowed to say it to, and the tone you have to use when you say it. Exactly. All at threat of expulsion or suspension. Yeah. I mean, this, was, this was not a feel-good, friendly thing. I mean, Tom Gray repeatedly argued, well, this this causes a you know, positive campus atmosphere, and it actually increases free speech because people feel safer. I mean, this was the the genesis of this whole safe spaces thing, which has, you know, metastasized since uh, 1994, 95 to a much greater degree. I mean, we, unfortunately, it, it seems like we're worse off now, even though the schools don't use straight speech codes as, as much as maybe they used to, um, it's it's just it, unfortunately it has not gotten better. Oh, they use plenty of them. We have ninety three percent of universities uh, still maintain at least one policy that wouldn't be constitutional, according to our the latest research in our Spotlight uh, database. And if you haven't. Uh, check that out uh, to all of the listeners. You can find it on our website, www.thefire.org. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rob, was the speech code in response to something, or was it a solution in search of a problem? The, the latter. Uh, there really wasn't any incident or issue that it was in response to. I think it was just a the, the proponents would say this is a proactive, preventive measure, um, which, you know, but like so many things, they just kind of made it up. Yeah. I want to talk about the genesis of your decision to file the lawsuit, because you filed the lawsuit along with eight other students, and were you represented the students in this lawsuit. You you represented yourself. Is that correct? I did, yeah. I was, I was a third-year law student, not admitted to the bar of any state, including California. So technically, I mean, looking back on this, I should not have been able to represent these other students because being a lawyer, that, that's, that's what a lawyer is able to do is represent others in cases. Now, of course, everybody has a right to represent himself or herself pro se without being a lawyer, but um, I probably shouldn't have been able to represent these other eight plaintiffs who were all Stanford students. We won't tell on you, and I think the statute of limitations has probably passed. That was an argument that Stanford should have made, which didn't. Um, Along and, with you know, the standing Stanford's argument. credit. Right. I mean, they, they made some good arguments. There's no question. Um, you know, once we filed this lawsuit, and it, it's, it is hard to sue your university. Um, it's hard to do it in a nice manner. I, you know, we sent 
couple really nice, polite, respectful letters saying, you know, please um, rescind this peach code. Here's why it runs afoul of the Leonard Law. You know, we'd rather not sue you. And we were sincere about that. We, we did not want to sue our school. Um, some people thought they'd withhold my diploma if I did that because I was a month or two away from graduation. Well, it takes a lot of courage to do it. And, and you know, and, and we know that pretty well because we launched our Stand Up for Speech project where we work with students to challenge speech codes uh, just a couple of years ago. And, you know, we have to we have to talk to students about you know, the pluses and minuses of challenging their institutions because uh, there's a lot a- a- at stake. There really is. And most people at Stanford have ambitions in life. I mean, it's, you know, suing your school is a, is a pretty radical move. Um, in our case, I think we really found strength in numbers, and that was the key. Had I been alone out there, one plaintiff, um, that would have been a lot more scary. Had any one of these individual plaintiffs been alone out there, it would have been difficult. But the nine of us, um, you know, there were strength in numbers, and we really were quite ideologically diverse. I mean, we had people from all different ideologies and and races and um, perspectives and religions and you know, so that was a good thing. That was that was a good lesson. There. Do you think that played out in you know in the court? Do you think that that had an impact on how the judge uh, viewed uh, your arguments? I think it did. Judges are human, and each plaintiff uh, executed a detailed affidavit that that individual plaintiff wrote. I didn't just ghostwrite it for everyone. You know, these are smart kids. Most more undergrads. We had three law students in the group. Um, and the judge could see that this wasn't just some right-wing cabal, but it really, you know, spanned across all political views, and that was a good thing. And that's that really great, yeah. because you know, yeah, the censorship and, really isn't a partisan issue. People censor who they disagree with, and that depends on who's in charge more than anything else. No question. And you know, this this prevailing orthodoxy that survives to this day on campus, I firmly believe disadvantages the the left liberal student more than the conservative. I mean, I I emerged from Stanford with a solid education because my views were challenged on a daily basis and I had to step up and defend them. Whereas, you know, the leftist student, I mean, can emerge from three years of law school not being challenged much by faculty and, and uh, you know, it, it so it really ultimately hurts them more than us. Um, and I say this as a kind of a libertarian leaning conservative myself. Um, so, you know, that's the, that's the irony of all this stuff. It helps, it helps the right and hurts the left students. But the other thing, and let me talk about the judge a little bit, because we got really lucky with our draw. And that can you, can you say, can you tell our listeners where the case was filed and the name of the, the name of the case? Yeah, we filed in uh, state court, Santa Clara County Superior Court, um, not federal court because we it was the Leonard Law, which was a state law, so we had to go to state court. And um, the case was Corey versus Stanford, Corey et al. versus um, Leland Stanford Junior University. And we actually sued the president um, of Stanford also, the board of trustees. We sued the student conduct officer by name. You know, we, we threw all these people in there, all in their official capacities, of course. We weren't seeking damages, monetary damages. All we wanted was an injunction. Um, and it was you know, a facial challenge because it wasn't in response to any sort of action, right? 
Correct. And that was that was difficult because, we, you know, we talked among ourselves, OK, who's going to go out there and actually violate the speech code and then have standing and defend? And, you know, we went back and forth about that as a group. And, you know, nobody was interested. And in I mean, we really n- none of us wanted to engage in this hate speech. We didn't we didn't believe in it. And, you know, so we weren't going to blatantly violate the speech code. And luckily, we were able to file and maintain a purely facial challenge to it uh, because because the speech code was, you know, on its face, violated the First Amendment and also the Leonard Law. So as far as the judge, we got really lucky. Judge Peter Stone, who um, was a Jewish man who fled Nazi persecution in Hungary when he was a young boy and then reached his way up to the Superior Court bench in California. And the interesting thing, and I don't think Stanford researched this judge very heavily like we did, um, the president of the university, Gerhard Kasper, also immigrated from Germany. He he was a young boy during Nazi times, and you know his approach to this lawsuit, his PR approach, was to say, "Well, I I, I was I grew up in Germany, you know, uh, under the Nazi regime, and I'm I'm well aware of you know how absolutes can be a bad thing, and and these plaintiffs are First Amendment absolutists, which was true, but you know." Casper was trying to criticize us for, for being First Amendment absolutists and using over and over this Nazi Germany analogy, which was totally misplaced and just, I mean, completely out of sorts. I mean, yeah, I saw he used Germany. that again in the response to your victory in the lawsuit. <laughs> yeah, he did. And uh, Nazi Germany, I'm sorry, did, did not have the First Amendment, anything like it. And, you know, so the, the analogy was just totally misplaced. And this judge... Um, you know, understood that far more than Gerhard Casper did. Well, and, it was uh, it was it was very uh, impressive that he not only recognized that, but but this was a lawsuit that had a number of hurdles because you had to not only establish that the speech code would be unconstitutional, uh, but you also had to establish that. The Leonard Law, which applied those standards to private institutions, was itself constitutional. Correct. So you had and a lot Stanford, of ways you could have lost. We, we sure could have, and, and Stanford did argue that point pretty well, honestly. They put forth the, the decent argument that you know the Leonard Law actually violates our First Amendment, our meaning Stanford's First Amendment rights, to you know set forth um, codes of conduct and that sort of thing, which is... There, there's something to that argument. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying they didn't have an argument, but um, well, I, luckily I, the judge. I was recently rereading the case, uh, and and what what impressed me uh, most was how poorly that argument was made by Stanford because they were talking about it in terms of their speech as opposed to their First Amendment right of freedom of association to pick what kind of community they wanted to have. Right. So, yeah, they didn't know how to make that argument. It didn't. The private sector arguments, did, they, so f- they were they were mentally incapable of, of uh, embracing that or contemplating it. So to flesh this out, you know, to act as a devil's advocate for a second, the argument against the Leonard Law is that private institutions uh, should enjoy the First Amendment freedom of association to pick what their community is like, and. 
when you say in a statute that a private institution must allow anyone to speak their mind if the if they ha- you know based on free speech principles it is choosing one of the rights provided under the first amendment uh to weigh heavier than the other right in the first amendment and so so it's it's an interesting issue for people to wrap their heads around and think about um but uh but but it wasn't really argued well in the case and the court ends up deciding it, it, in the judgment that you won, that the Leonard Law is perfectly constitutional. Well said. I'm glad you weren't counsel for Stanford way back then. (laughs) (laughs) You might have have, uh, struck down the Leonard Law. And there are good people on both sides of this. You know, after our victory, we were kind of riding high, and I had some inquiries from congressmen who wanted to pass a federal Leonard Law, um, you know, applying across the the nation, and, and we worked with them a little bit. It, it went nowhere um, because of the arguments you bring up. I think. I mean, I think both occasionally sides. congressmen ask me about it, and I give them the pros and cons, and let them make yeah. up and 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 and, 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 and let them make up uh, their minds. And it's also an issue again in the news uh, because uh, after those riots at Berkeley University, uh, the president went public about uh, asking whether or not it would be appropriate to strip Berkeley of its federal funding. That's right. And, you know, Berkeley, that, that, that was such an interesting situation because, I mean, that didn't, that didn't just happen out of the blue. I mean, Berkeley had been fomenting this and creating this environment for many years. Well, Bill Maher in- was, was subject to a disinvitation uh, campaign there. And, and a few months earlier, there was a college Republican student who uh, complained that he had been assaulted for having a cutout of, of then-candidate Trump in front of a, a, a Berkeley police officer who did, who did nothing. So, so that was uh, – there's some seed sowing on that campus. And you know, I should clarify to our listeners that Berkeley is a public institution, but the question that's similar to the Leonard Law that's presented at Berkeley is whether or not federal funds should be tied or public dollars should be tied to – uh, to the First Amendment, they're, they're currently not. A, a discrimination law, uh, you know, has ties to, to federal funding, uh, but the First Amendment doesn't. But there is a section of the education code that talks about universities um, should respect free speech, and it doesn't directly tie it to federal funds, but I think a Department of Education could look at that and um, could make that linkage. Yeah, there's been a sense of Congress that that, that, that prioritizes uh, you know, the values of free speech in, in, in higher education that's passed and been and been renewed a couple times over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is um, for for the benefit of our listeners here. Um, Twenty U.S. Code section one o one one a says it. it could be in the hands of a good Department of Education, which we may have here, um, could be a tool for progress. No student attending an institution of higher education should, on the basis of participation in protected speech or protected association, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination or official sanction under any education program activity or division of the 
institution directly or indirectly receiving financial assistance under this chapter. So this is federal law. Um, one could say if uh, a program is receiving indirect federal financial assistance, which is anything at any university, that, and they all receive federal financial assistance, if a student is subjected to official sanction, that program should not receive federal financial assistance. So yeah. I think there's already th that in there. I predict we're going to continue to have those conversations uh, as controversies on campus uh, heat up. Uh, but I want to return a little bit uh, to the case. Um, and I'm wondering from your perspective, what you were more worried about when you were when you were litigating it? Were you more worried about standing? Were you more worried about uh, about whether or not you'd be able to convince the court that the speech code was unconstitutional, or were you worried about you know the application of the Leonard Law and whether or not they'd uphold that? And conversely, were you worried about none of it at all because you were really confident? <laughs> well, I wouldn't say we were really confident. I mean, we were going up against um, top litigators that Stanford hired. Uh, David Heilbronn, who was former president of the California Bar Association, Harvard Law School grad, um, president of the Harvard Law Review when he was in law school. I mean, just highly credentialed, <clears throat> brilliant attorney. And you know, I was this third-year law student who had no clue um, <laughs> my way around a courtroom and really didn't even know how to file a lawsuit. I mean, they didn't teach that at Stanford Law file a lawsuit. Um, but they did teach us, in the words of my torts professor, Bill Cohen, who was a principled opponent to the speech code, he said, well, we didn't teach you how to file a lawsuit, but we taught you how to check the rules. <laughs> so we were not confident at all. And I think probably my biggest fear was I was just missing something, missing some procedural thing, missing some rule. Um, you know, back in these days, there were we did not have internet. Um, Al Gore had not yet invented the internet. So um, all of our research was the old fashioned way, opening up a book. And, you know, you, you don't know whether you're missing something. We have some young listeners, so why don't you explain books? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was right before. We didn't even have email back then. I mean, we had to literally print out this lawsuit and you know, mail it into the court. Um, and uh, so that was my biggest fear, that I was just missing some obvious thing that things that lawyers know that non-lawyers don't know What could be found. What, what about Go ahead. worries about from, you know, backlash from the campus community? You had, you had eight co-plaintiffs here. Were you concerned? What was the response from the university community, from your fellow students, from your teachers and the administrators? That's a great question. You know, the, the students were almost almost unanimously for us. I mean, I, I received very little negative blowback from my peers. And, you know, these are peers across the ideological spectrum. You know, free speech is, is just this issue that at the time and maybe somewhat now still brings people together. And, you know, we had the ACLU on our side, even though most of the plaintiffs were, you know, not um, ACLU-type liberals. We had a few of them, but um, a lot of us were from the Stanford Review, not all of us. So we got good response from the students and even the faculty. You know, I would say the majority of them were encouraging me. Um, 
giving me the thumbs up privately, uh, and I understand why they couldn't do so publicly as faculty of Stanford. Um, so good response there, and you know the media at the time understood the First Amendment and gave us positive coverage at all levels. I mean, we were on CNN and you were called the Speech news. Code Slayer in the Stanford <laughs> Review. That's right. Yeah, the, the review wrote it up. I mean, they covered it, you know, in more detailed fashion than any other paper because um, we were with that paper. But it was uh, good response from people. And, you know, I was a little worried about suing the president and actually had to accept my diploma from him in person. He handed it to me, um, you know, plaintiff, and he's the defendant. But he was he was pretty gracious in person, you know. Um, so that reaction was kind of a pleasant surprise. It was something we were worried about. We did care what people thought of us, and that was that was a, a nice thing. Well, it's good to hear um, because we have a lot of stu- – we hear from students all the time who are interested in challenging their university speech codes, and that's one of their main concerns is, you know, what's the response from my – peers going to be? What's the response from the faculty members going to be? And in your case, it was pretty positive. It was. And that's, but, and that is a valid concern. There's no question, you know, these students that are out there, uh, they do care about what people think about them and people should care. And, um, you know, that's, that's a solid question to have. And I guess my answer to that is to go back to the real reasons why we have free speech. These are ideologically neutral principles that apply both ways and you know if we were suppressing uh, leftist speech on campus and and 90% of the professors were registered Republicans and the prevailing orthodoxy was you know not to allow any leftist speech I would hope that um, conservatives would would come and defend uh, leftists for, for their free speech if they were the ones under attack and so if if people in the future are bringing these types of challenges keep keep the principles in mind the neutral principles and flip the flip the uh, ideologies involved and one would hope that people could understand that defending all types of free speech even the even though the perspectives that you don't have um can ultimately defend all perspectives. Well, well said. I mean, I usually, you know, ask people to think through whether or not they'd be so quick to hand over the, 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 the tools of censorship to their political adversaries. Uh, it's one thing to think that you yourself uh, will be a enlightened censor, but uh, you know, history has, uh, has, has proven otherwise. Yeah. I always ask people, I was like, who is the angel in society that you would nominate for the task of deciding what you can hear, what you can see, what you can read? Um, I don't know that I'd choose anyone in this world to decide for me what yeah. plays I can see, what books I can read, what music I can listen to. But That's a good, good point. Let me ask you guys a question because here, right. here's how things have changed. Um, you know, back in my day in law school, nobody really argued with a straight face that the, the, the notion of free speech issue of, of freedom or, you know, these, these principles are inherently themselves racist and sexist and, you know, the, the tool of the ruling class to oppress everyone else. Nowadays, I mean, you hear this argument all the time where 
you know, otherwise intelligent, credible people come in and say, well, we don't even, we shouldn't even have free speech. It's just a tool of the, of the white male and the oppressor. Um, that's an argument I, honestly, I'm not sure how I, how I persuade that person or even try to. And I know you guys deal with this all the time. Well, that's a great question, and, and we're always trying to, to give a better and better answer to it. Uh, you know, I think that they're just wrong and don't recognize how vital uh, free speech has been to literally every civil rights advancement in, in our history. And I think that one, you know, thing that we can do about it is to make sure that we, you know, eliminate these speech codes because I think that as we see the calls for censorship, they're often coming from a perspective of people who feel like their voices haven't been heard. And uh, and I think that they're misguided in the approach that they're that they're taking, but but making sure that all of the uh, you know lawful avenues for for uh, speaking out uh, are are open to them and seeing them and letting them see how valuable free speech is as a tool uh, and experience that for themselves is 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 the way we're going to change that attitude over time. Yeah, one of the things that's concerning to me is a lot of these stu- students. Uh, rightfully or so or not, are concerned that their administrations or their institutions of power are oppressing them in one way or another or marginalizing them in one way or another. But these, in some cases, are students who are also asking that their administrations adopt speech codes. And those, you know, who would be responsible for enforcing those speech codes on campus? Those same institutions of power (laughs) that these students are concerned about uh, abusing that power. So even if you disagree with free speech from a moral standpoint, at least from a tactical perspective, you should approve of it. But I want to I want to close up here because I know you're a busy man and I don't want to keep you too long. This week is the anniversary, uh, the 22nd anniversary of the decision in the case, which came down on February 27th, 1995. Uh, and you guys won almost across the board and eliminated a speech code that affected more than 13,000 uh, un- undergraduates, or no, 13,000 students as a whole, 6,500 6, undergraduates. What, what, how did you first hear about the victory? Well, let's see. I was a staff attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation at the time in Sacramento, and I believe somebody from the LA Times called me and said, do you know that this came down? Um, they scooped you. you. Comment. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had no idea because going back to, you know, at the time, the court would have mailed me the decision, like United States mail. Um, so I didn't know about it at the time. And then the L.A. Times or some newspaper, I don't know if it was them or maybe the San Francisco Chronicle, faxed me the, the lengthy decision. Yes, we did use um, fax machines back then, some, and we don't use those much anymore. But uh, that... That is how I found out about it. And it was covered everywhere. I mean, there was write-ups in the New York Times. For a state court decision, it had a big national impact, it at did. least as far as the narrative narrative went. And <laughs> you also happened to prove Abraham Lincoln wrong, who said that he who represents himself has a fool for a client. <laughs> you had a resounding <laughs> victory and proved him wrong. Well, that was the interesting thing, too, you know, because we put so much effort into this. I mean, we really... And it was mostly Scott Cooper, another plaintiff who was also a law student, and I did most of the law work, um, you know, because we were the law students. Are you still in touch with your co-plaintiffs? Some of them, yeah. I was actually out at Stanford last month for a Stanford Review reunion, which was a blast, and um, saw a few of them out there. Amon Vergy, he's still very involved with the Review. He was one of our co-plaintiffs. 
and um, that was nice to to see a lot of the folks um, from way back. I'm not in touch with all of them, but it would be interesting to have some sort of reunion or something at some point for the plaintiffs. What would you say to other students that are considering challenging their university speech codes? I would say do it. Um, I would say go for it because looking back on my law career, you know, I've handled some very interesting cases and done some interesting things. But this was this was one of the most interesting things I've ever done as an attorney. And we were on the right side, too. So, um, so no question. And, 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 we, and we love it. Uh, but one of the things we wanted to ask you before we let you go is, what are you up to these days? My understanding is you have a pretty uh, fascinating uh, legal practice out in Colorado and wanted to give you a chance to tell uh, our, our listeners about it. We do. I, I run a small law firm based in Denver, um, and we've kind of carved out a leadership role in Colorado's newest cash crop and the industry surrounding it, um, cannabis, which has been exciting, you know, and I attribute a lot of our creativity and and the firm's success for what we accomplished at Stanford and the fact that we came out of Stanford with an open mind and we sued our university and that took a little bit of courage and taking on this cannabis issue required some courage as an attorney, too. Well, you know, the Corey decision, uh, you know, could be a career high for anyone, but it sounds like you have other highs coming. (laughs) (laughs) And the decision wasn't appealed, wasn't appealed, right? We should say that. We we skipped over that. that Stanford did not appeal it. Um, And I, two, uh, two reasons for that, I think. Number one, the judge got it right, the trial court judge, and he really put the effort into it, which you don't see from every trial court judge, at least I haven't in the 20 years I've been practicing since then. Um, but this judge put the hard effort into it. I, I think he wrote it himself. I don't think a, a state court judge in California has a cadre of clerks or anything. So that was one reason Stanford didn't appeal, because he was right, and they probably thought their prospects, prospects of success were small. The other reason is the PR. I mean, they got tons of negative PR from alums and the media, top to bottom. Uh, this was a bad thing for Stanford. Uh, it was a bad move for their image and a bad move for a great international research university to have a speech code that prevents people from saying things. Well, the case for free speech is a powerful one, and it's one that we uh, rely on every day at FIRE. Yeah, you guys are doing great work out there. All right, Rob, we're going to let you go. Rob Corey, Speech Code Slayer, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for joining us, and again, thank you for that compliment. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. If you are a student or faculty member who is interested in challenging your school's speech codes in court, visit StandUpForSpeech.com or email StandUpAtTheFire.org to learn how we at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education can help you. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at thefire.org, or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. Until next time, thanks for listening.